Hello, everyone. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Project Moon Hut podcast series, The Age of Infinite, where we're looking to learn from individuals from around the world about sustainable life on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. For us, the desired outcome is to change how we live on Earth for all species. We have a phenomenal guest on the line, Dennis Poulos. He, looking through his history, it is incredible what he's done. Probably he's had this singled out many, many times. It is, he, is the, he was a pilot in the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps with over 3,500 hours. But the big thing that tops it off is he was a Top Gun. So if you've seen the movie with, now I can't even remember his name. Who's the movie guy? Tom, uh, Tom Cruise. He was a Top Gun. So he was also director of Northrop Grumman Aerospace Systems and their advanced concept groups and a certifiable space geek, as he calls himself. Hello, Dennis. How are you? Hey, David. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing fantastic. Beautiful day today. We've, yes, we had decided that our topic today was going to be moon is the first step to human salvation very interesting direction. Hopefully we could take this. So you have a few bullet points that you can share with us to get us started? Yeah. Um, I, in thinking about uh, about this, and, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this over the last 65 years. Um, <laughs> so you, the, can't um, be, you can't be 49. It's 65 years. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, I'm not 49 anymore. I haven't been for a while. Um, there, in... in it, what bothers me, what concerns me, I'm, I've always been more concerned with the uh, human species than uh, anything in particular. I, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in country and all that kind of stuff. But in, in the long run, my concern is with the salvation of the human species. And, and there are numerous existential threats to, to the human species, even more than those that are, you know, commonly thought of nowadays. And, I, and I'm thinking about stuff that's a little more esoteric than that. Um, and and uh, it's it's my firm belief that space offers one thing, which life here on Earth can't necessarily offer, and and that is that physical separation at times is required for a species to continue to exist and to evolve. And so, space-faring species, I think, is uh, really important uh, for the human species, uh, both here on Earth and and for the evolution of the species altogether. Uh, in, in the continued evolution. Um, and and then, you know, there are numerous side effects to, to going to space. As with anything, there's good sides and bad sides. But there is so much potential and hope offered in becoming a spacefaring species that it just, like like you talk about, uh, it's it's it offers the age of infinite. And, and uh, you know, the moon is kind of the first step, and I really push the moon uh, myself, uh, whenever I talk to anybody, and, and I've been, you know, a, a moon gig for a long time, because it really is the first step to being able to achieve all the rest of this stuff. So that's, those are the kind of, you know, basic okay. points that I've always so, pushed when I talk to people. So I'm going to, I'm going to break it down into threats, physical separation, and to evolve, side effects, and then moon the first steps with the age of infinite and what comes from that. Does that sound a good way to, sure. to cut it? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So let's start with uh, the first one, which are threats. What are yeah, these threats? Uh, well, it, I you know I, I watch a lot of uh, TV and 60 Minutes and uh, read a lot of stuff. And one of the things that really kind of got to me many many years ago, uh, 
10, 15, 20, I don't know, is uh, this this uh, thing about uh, Yellowstone being a super volcano. And uh. they didn't really understand what that meant many years ago. And then, uh, so when they talked about uh, a, uh, a, a, a detonation of the super volcano there, uh, it, it, it turns out that some people were listening at a scientific conference and they go, Hey, you know, we noticed that there was a mass extinction event about that same time, and then there was another group of people doing mitochondrial. So, so just I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you for a minute. If you sure. can um, assume I don't know anything, assume I'm living okay. right now. For example, I'm in Hong Kong. Uh, what is the super volcano? What is Yellowstone? What's uh, give me some a little bit more details. Well, you know, a, a, a volcano, a volcano normally, you know, is uh, you know a, a big uh, mountain. Uh, you know, you get a uh, caldera, and and the caldera explodes. I mean, you know, Vesuvius and all that kind of stuff. Yellowstone itself is about a, I think the numbers I was seeing is like 60 mile wide by 120 mile long super volcano that at one point some 60,000 years ago blew up and. It put enough stuff in the atmosphere that it turns out through various different studies, um, the human species was almost extinct at that point. Um, so 60,000 years ago, we almost went away. Um, and so it, it started me thinking about this concept that there were uh, existential threats, meaning to me that things we can't necessarily do anything about from a technical perspective. Uh, from a societal perspective, you know, mm -hmm. the global warming, we can do something about it. Whether we will or not, I don't know. Uh, plastics in the environment, uh, we can do something about it. It certainly represents a threat to the human species, but uh, these are kinds of events that um, uh, that really are almost uncontrollable, and and they present, a, uh, like I said, an existential threat to the entire species. Uh, we could go away. I mean, you know, everybody worries about a comet or an asteroid coming in and uh, taking out the Earth, and, you know, that certainly has happened. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm constantly... So, so, so give me a, give me a few of these threats. I mean, we, we've got the supervolcano. Sure. Are, you are you talking about what are the threats that you have on your list? Well, let me let me finish up with the supervolcano for a second. As it turns sure. out, somebody was doing mitochondrial DNA analysis, and as at one point, apparently the human species was down to something like a thousand to six thousand individuals in the entire world. Wow! Uh, and that was about sixty thousand years ago. Uh, so that, yeah, they went through all the mitochondrial DNA and they traced it down to something in the area of about one to six thousand individuals alive at that point. You know, we always think of the human species as, you know, being ever-present, always, everywhere, and, and apparently we almost went away. And uh, that that just, I, it had blew my mind. I, I did not understand that. I did not know that there was that kind of threat to the human species. Um, coming to today, uh, I mean, there's, there's other ones out there. Uh, I don't know how many, uh, I, I don't know if you know about uh, a Carrington-level event. Uh, no, this is I, a, I, a solar I, flare. What what is it called? The Carrington. Carrington. And what Carrington? He was an astronomer during the 1800s, and he noticed a um, uh, 
a solar flare, and he was uh, writing about it, and he started noticing around the world different news articles. Uh, and we were just getting into the age of uh, trains and telegraphs and stuff, and, and there was a, a period where uh, telegraph uh, wires all flamed down at the same time, and it burned up. Uh, train trestles and that kind of stuff. Hold on for just a second. Let me quiet this one down. Um, all the, uh, the train tracks and train trestles started to uh, burn up spontaneously. And so what had happened was there was an electromagnetic event before the Industrial Revolution that um, was a very substantial event. And as it turns out about every 300 years or so, there's generally a Carrington-level event, a solar flare that impacts the Earth. Um, we just missed one about four years ago. Uh, we were seven days ahead of it in the uh, rotation around the uh, sun. So we were just uh, just missed it by about a week. And uh, the last um, studies that I had seen says that about 60% of the human population will die off within one year of a Carrington-level event because we're wow. not prepared to live without technology. Yeah, computers go away. Um, the electrical system goes away. The Internet goes away. Uh, unless it's been specifically hardened, and no industrial nation at this point is hardening in preparation for a Carrington-level event. Um, so, well, and, and people ask me, you know, why would the electrical system go away? Well, as it turns out, one of the big parts of the electrical system are transformers. There are literally millions of transformers around, but they're so substantial and they last for so long that we only have an industrial capacity to build some, like, 6,000 or 60,000, I don't know what number is, some, some ridiculously known number. Of transformers. Now, if you take out the entire world's number of transformers, you can't rebuild the electrical system in a year or two. You don't have the industrial capacity. You can't build up the industrial capacity. We don't have the computer-controlled systems to do it. So we're talking at that point... Uh, rampant disease, uh, money goes away. I mean, literally, the world goes back uh, 800 years in in a single, oh, I don't know, five minute period. And so, you know, those are the kinds of existential threats. Um, uh, let me sort of talk about another one that uh, really uh, always kind of concerns me. And talking to Pete Warden. Uh, this, this is what came to uh, what, what he made me understand at one point, and that's that um, uh, we do a lot of experimentation with DNA. And frankly, we're a very smart species, but pff, we are, we're not that smart. So we put in a lot of safeguards to uh, prevent uh, DNA, uh, experimented on DNA uh, that could be very uh, virulent. Uh, and we, we safeguard it with all sorts of different things. But I think we all know that no matter how you safeguard something, sooner or later it's going to get out there. It's going to get in the wild. And, and frankly, we don't know what the effect of that would be. Um, one of the things Pete talked about was uh, all medical research should be done on the moon because there's physical separation, which is a natural barrier. We can talk about, more about that later. Um, so, you know, there's just an infinite number of existential threats to life today that uh, really 
really puts the human existence in question. We always assume that, you know, we as a species are going to survive. And I don't ever assume that because I don't know that that's necessarily a true statement. Uh, another one that I, I'm a pilot. I love to fly. I, I think flying is the greatest thing. It's, it's been uh, a generator of more economic activity. It has brought the world closer together. It has done all sorts of things. But, you know, we all know that in the early 1900s, 1914, I think it was, uh, the Spanish flu. Um, it wiped out, what, 30% of the world's population? Uh, and that is a time when the physical connectedness between species and between towns and areas was very limited. I mean, it took months to get across the ocean and that kind of stuff, or at least weeks. Um, so, you know, if, if something were to come in the way of a biological threat, um, the fact that we're so interconnected with flying, uh, I, you always see it on science fiction, and, and I think there's a lot more truth to it than fiction. There could be an existential threat to the human species because of something either we did or uh, something that just comes out naturally. As we go through global warming, different viruses are now coming out that haven't been seen in 30 or 40,000 years. That we're not well, that was the, wasn't that the, the movie Outbreak? Yeah, that was, was one of them. That was a, a classic, and I believe, just an aside, I believe that movie was created as a propaganda tool to get people to start understanding that these are potential risks. I did not realize that, but I yeah, think someone had told did a great me, job someone, doing it. So, someone told me that one of the reasons that it was produced is they had gotten together and they figured... The human population has to know about this, so why don't we create a movie that depicts what's going on? And the 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 int an interesting aside to the aside is that uh, they they show two pictures of Hong Kong because that's where it started, and one of them is not Hong Kong, I believe. I think someone said to me, "No, no, that that's actually Macau, but that's not Macau." So it was yet they, they kind of mixing their own and making their own narrative to show that. Once you have something, a virulent strain, it could be passed along around the world. So it was a, when you notice it from that perspective, they were trying to educate the populace. Yeah, uh, we, we've used uh, um, media, uh, movies and that kind of stuff in many ways, many times to educate the populace. And I think, uh, you know, to, to a good effect. And then sometimes we put garbage out there that just is <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> we, we, you know, and people pick up on it and they do strange things. And, you know, I, it, it, yes. Media could be used very effectively for that kind of thing. So, absolutely. So, so biological threat, the Spanish fly. Uh, what what others? Uh, yeah, it's funny because I, as you're talking to me, I, my mind is racing. What are those threats? And I, I've always gone. We we always go to the asteroid. We always go to certain categories, and I don't have a lot in my head. What else would there well, be out there? Um, the um what is it, uh, the F, not the FDA, but uh, uh, the guys in Atlanta, C the, the uh, CDC? medical guys in Atlanta. Yeah. C has, uh, has the what Center they call, for Disease Control, yeah. Right. Has what they call uh, uh, Virus X. And this is what they do, various uh, apparently uh, wargaming efforts and uh, preparation for us and that kind of stuff. And, and their hypothesis is that there is a virus out there somewhere in a, in a jungle 
or up in Alaska when the, the global warming gets things free or some other virus, which it just cannot be stopped uh, effectively and quick enough. They cannot respond with any kind of uh, vaccines or anything else um, fast enough, and it spreads fast enough. Uh, you know, basically, infection this period is like within a day, but you don't see symptoms within 10 days, uh, that kind of stuff. You know, there's there's any of a number of biological threats that we could be facing. I mean, we don't know what's out there in space, and we don't know. We we know that stuff rains down on us constantly, uh, and so we don't know what kind of viruses could have survived uh, uh, in space and just magically show up uh, in a in an asteroid, in a comet, uh, in anything. So uh, there's I, we could sit down all day long and and go through the the list of various threats to the human species, uh, but. We, we've got to sit down as a as a species and, and start looking at how do we get our species protected uh, and and how do we survive when one of those things impacts a geographic area and a geographic area in, in my terms is is earth uh, do we uh, do we have people off earth do we have the genome off earth is that a better place is that a worse place is can we do things off Earth that will impact uh, the survivability on Earth? All of those things are so important that we need to sit down and take a look at it. And as a species, we've never had that thought pattern, nor have we ever sat down and, and you know, it, it, we've only been flying in space for 60 years. Now, so I, 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 I thought, Dennis, I really thought you were going to say that I'm on F, so I'm doing out letters. I thought you were going to say and the apes are going to rise up. Oh no. <laughs> I come on, this guy, this is the planet of the apes. I mean, that's that isn't isn't that a true story? <laughs> yeah, it, it I mean it it could happen. Uh, I don't have enough of a creative imagination to think of all the things that could happen. But clearly the the it, it, the list is much longer than those things that we are currently thinking about. Uh, you know, I, 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 I've got to be very careful here not to sound too crazy, but I certainly believe that there's life outside uh, Earth. Um, and, and just like when the conquistadors came over and visited our good friends in South America, that didn't work out very well for them. So we don't know if we could get a message and something bad happens because uh, the message tells us to do something or, or somebody something visits us. Uh, you you can go absolutely crazy thinking about all of the various ways that bad stuff could happen, and uh, and maybe maybe there's something to be said for not believing. Yeah, yeah. If you don't believe, you don't have to worry about it. Um, you don't you don't wake up thinking about these things as you've said for sixty five years. So well, then let's what, let, let me just. Step off uh, for for one second on this one. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Have fun. I, I I like to look at the history. Um, the age of the Viking and in uh, in Britain, um, the British had to survive the incursions of the Vikings, and what they learned to do as a species was to turn out the uh, lights, the lighthouses. They would turn off. They would put out the burning fires. Uh, fires that would uh, be used for navigation by their own people. 
so as a matter of form to sort of protect themselves from uh, the uh, Viking invaders being able to land. Um, today, I'm massively concerned that we're putting out huge amounts of electromagnetic energy, and it really is a lighthouse if anybody's looking for us, and, and we're inviting the universe to come over here and knock on our door. Uh, I would much rather find them and knock on their door than have them find us and knock on our door. So I'm, I'm, I do make the point at times that all the radios, all the radar, all the electromagnetic, electromagnetic radiation, the TV, everything that we transmit out to the universe, that is, a, that is a beacon for somebody to come find us. And people go, why haven't we seen anybody else in the, uh, in, in the local galactic region? Uh, why don't we find uh, smart, intelligent species and their signals? And maybe they learned the lesson that you don't advertise where you are because somebody else may come knocking at your door. So, you know, you can go crazy thinking about all of the ways that there could be threats to the human species. I, I, I honest, that was, you, you got me on that one because I had never thought about that our lights just the the the, the um, illumination of the planet the radio frequencies all of those human behaviors human activities human engagement will end up sending out a signal in that way hmm yeah it, we're uh, very clearly advertising our our uh, existence uh, the good news is 60 light years away we're pretty sure that there's nobody that's we've found so uh, you know 60 years away uh, that's the first uh, television signal so you know that's that's how far away we're advertising now 300 so, years so, now it could be really yeah good. well i i i don't follow the same train of thought in terms of worrying that you do it's one of the contentions or one of the beliefs that i think we have to use on earth or in in space when thinking about space is that we use our own perceptions of how things should be done, could be done, may be done in order to understand the world. We believe that you cannot go faster than the speed of light. We believe that there are certain uh, guidelines for everything that we've learned so far. Yet another species that lives in another dimension or another thing that we've never heard of thought of. And I'm, I'm going crazy here, please. If, if you, you have to take me and put me down, that's okay. Uh, that I think that we might be making ma many of those assumptions too about capabilities that something, somebody else, some way, some potential can jump leapfrog, do something differently than we can. So being here at 60,000 light years away, or whatever distance might not be the same jump that we're used to. So yes. just a thought. No, no, I, I, absolutely. I mean, clearly if there is extraterrestrial life that visits other areas, uh, there's only two ways they can do it. One is faster than light transportation in, you know, subspace. I don't know, you know, I'm a physics major. Um, you know, there is uh, wormholes and all sorts of different things. Whether you can use them for navigation, I don't know. Um, but the other way is that they could send out sub-light speed uh, 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 or spaceships with you know people on them, and over multiple generations they go find different places and they colonize it. And it may be a uh, a species uh, 
that uh, their their imperative is to go colonize as many places as possible. Uh, you know, yeah, you're, we think, and you and I had this conversation. We think the way we were, um, the way we learned in in the environments that we have been raised, uh, society. Um, I had you know, being a Navy brat and being in the Navy myself. Uh, I spent time in Asia, and I, I don't believe that the Asians see things anywhere near the same way that we do here in America, nor the South Americans. There is a lot of commonality between the way we approach things, but there's a, a lot of history there that makes us look at different things differently. Um, uh, one of the great stories is, you know, European exploration of the uh, the, uh, the New, new World. And we always think of only the Europeans as having done that exploration. But I learned, much to my surprise, like in the 14 or 1500s, the Chinese had every bit as uh, dynamic a uh, exploration program uh, as uh, the Europeans did. And the Chinese, because they, well, I've heard two reasons. One is they were, you know, uh, they were xenophobic and were worried about other cultures, and the other one is that they never really did anything with their colonization programs. They didn't do anything economic. They just met different uh, societies, uh, passed some beads off, says, uh, you know, our emperor says uh, hi, and uh, moved on. And so they never gained any economic benefit from it. Either way, the Chinese, within a period of about 30 years, just completely wiped out their exploration program. They sank ships, they got rid of people, and they just stopped it like it, you know, hit a wall. So the Chinese saw exploration differently than the Europeans did. So I've been fortunate enough, uh, having lived in many places around the world, to have seen many different societies, not all of them. Uh, and I certainly won't say that I understand them, but I do understand that, boy, there is a big difference between the way people look at things, depending upon where you were raised. And, and yeah. I, to, to, to piggyback on that, I had the... the a similar type of uh, conditioning or learning experience about what happened. The Chinese went out to share their information while the Europeans went to conquer. Yes. And that differentiation was one was grabbing landmass territory and the other one was not. The second that someone had, uh, one book that I had read, and I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, is that while we think of time is being linear, that things are happening in a linear, linear format, you really have to think that there are linear conditions happening all over the world. So while the Vikings are doing X, there's another whole culture doing another whole whole life experience. They, yes. they looked at the world differently, and we tend to think that, well, the, the, there was the there was this series and there was this series and there was World War II and there was World War One, or what happened in line. But there are hundreds of different parallel universes or not universes, parallel lives happening. So the Aborigines or or a group that's in the Amazon des Amazon did not experience the same thing that we did as uh, as, for example, in American culture going through the Vietnam War. They, they didn't even know it existed. So there are so many different variations of the. I, let's call it the, I'm, I'm using a word, maybe it's not the right word, the truth that we have to be conscious of. Yes. So let's get on, let's get on to sure. the, uh, the physical separation. What do you, yeah. go ahead. 
Go ahead. No, you tell me. Spacefaring, we must be spacefaring, physical separation. What, yeah, are, you, what, no, are, what are your thoughts? I, I, I firmly believe that if, if the human species is to live, pick a number, another thousand years, uh, 200 years, I don't know what the number is, um, at least in the form that it is now, some sort of an industrialized species, um, we have to be able to mitigate the effects of this tight interconnectedness that we have as a species. Um, I mean, in many ways, this, this interconnectedness is, is a wonderful thing. It has brought sharing of information. It has brought um, uh, the opportunity to do economic uh, uh, trade and, and learn things. And, you know, the, the world is becoming a smaller place uh, because we fly, because of all the other things that we do. Uh, but the other risk to that is um, homo- uh, being homogeneous is not necessarily a good thing. Um, I, I, I believe that we probably had much more political uh, evolution uh, in the period when we didn't, as a species, have the interconnectedness that we have now. Uh, different places had different approaches to things. Uh, the laws in Germany were not necessarily affected by the laws in uh, Guyana, uh, you know. And, and so, um, there, I, I'm a big believer in chaos for a species. The only way that evolution happens is by chaos. And as we get more and more interconnected, um, there's a tighter and tighter cap put on chaos. We we tend to fight chaos as a species. And, you know, at the conference that you and I were both at where I met you, uh, there was that one session, I think it was probably the last session, when we were talking about how do we make laws, pass regulations, how do we do all of this kind of stuff to make sure that uh, space exploration is for the common human the good of all human species, or the, all, all humankind. And, and I guess at one point I, I said, geez, you know, I was really hoping by this point in my life that I would be at least one astronomical unit away from this very discussion. And, and I meant that in, in all seriousness. When I was growing up, I, man, I thought we were, we were going there as a species. And then space turned into a political football. Um, we, we're seeing a golden age in space now, but um, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that physical separation allows both the chaos and the ability to evolve into different um, uh, different political concepts. It allows the species itself to uh, evolve different. Uh, here on Earth, we're, we're becoming very homogeneous. Uh, we are starting to become very interracial. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it is limiting all of the variations that we see in human species that have developed over the last 12,000 years. And we're trying to sort of make that go away. Um, I'm going to get really... I'm going to you're you're just so you know, your, your mic, I don't know if your mic is, you got your hand down the mic, or I'm not hearing you ah. as clearly. There okay, you go. well, let me... Yeah, Thank let you. me yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to irritate a lot of people here. Uh, and and I, I do relate a lot of things to uh, mass entertainment. But... Um, uh, I, I'm I'm terrified of Facebook and Twitter and that kind of stuff, uh, simply because I, I don't call them social networks. They're uh, 
Borg uh, version 01 uh, from the uh, Star Trek. Uh, if you yep. take a look at the different things that Gene Roddenberry wrote about with the Borg, uh, being connected, uh, almost being interconnected uh, with people having implants in their brains, uh, a common decision, uh, the, working for the good of the uh, just the, the Borg itself, assimilating, uh, and and as somebody from the Borg, we're physically separated from the collective. Uh, you know, it was massive uh, um, depression, and they were alone, and all of that kind of stuff. And if you listen to some kids today, when they turn off Facebook, they they experience many of the same kinds of things. And and to a degree, we turn over our decision making to uh, uh, the the collective. Uh, so. Uh, that kind of interconnectedness has its advantages, the, the economics, the mechanics, the societal things that we're doing now. We're in a golden age uh, from economics, uh, industrialization, uh, technology, all of the things, uh, and it's all enabled by interconnectedness. But to a degree, there's also increased threats, uh, and there's a lack of chaos and a lack of evolution in our thinking. Uh, that uh, the human species is having to deal with. And that's why I do talk uh, or, or, or really think that physical separation, the moon for one, is something that we absolutely need as a species, uh, ultimately going uh, maybe to Mars, certainly out to the uh, asteroid belt, uh, will, will allow us to continue to evolve as a species, almost force us to do that. And it also provides some degree of separation from some of those threats, uh, the biological threats. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, Carrington level event where Earth gets wiped out technologically, but, you know, part of our genome could be out in space, not anywhere near the solar flare, and continue to survive. So that's, it's that's a, why. You know, the, the, the Borg, the Borg uh, version one is an interesting thought. I don't want to go too far into that, but that's a, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what you have said, and I'm thinking about a conversation, a little texting, an email back and forth I have with one of the presidents of one of our companies where uh, I replied to this guy and said, you know, look, I didn't, this isn't happening, this isn't happening, and he replied back in a very negative way. Well, you don't know what's happening. And I, I was speaking to Lori last night, and I said, all I see is his posts on Facebook. So to me, his life looked exciting and everything was good and everything was happy and he was part of the collective sharing all of those experiences. He had a whole other side of his life that he wasn't sharing and yet uh, with the artificial intelligence that's being used in China to be able to facial recognition and some of these other tools that are being de developed, we could create where we understand a 360 perspective of someone's life at one time. So very interesting thought. I, I you took me in a place I hadn't thought about. And now, oh. now I'm, uh, now I'm scared. <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I have been reading that the Chinese are now implementing social credit, uh, by your yes. uh, social profile. And that they're talking about limiting travel and sort of other things by how you appear, in social media, that terrifies yeah. me. I mean, that does. Th there, there's a there's a huge experiment, and I don't know the province in China. It's the most western province. There's a discussion about how they're afraid. They're trying to control some of the dissidents, 
and people are being facially recognized all day long, but they're also going through security scans up to seven times a day, eight times a day, and everything they're doing is being monitored on their uh, cell phone, mobile phone. They're, everything they're doing is being monitored one way, shape, or form, and they are being given, like you're saying, uh, a pat on the back for doing something that is pro-social based upon the social norms of China. And so, yes, we are we are experimenting with that around the world, and I don't think that will stop. So that's if you think of a cryptocurrency and a token, you're you're game of gamifying a certain behavior. So, OK, so let's let's get on to the side effects with our time that we've got left. We've got about um, 25 minutes. We got side effects and then moon is the first step. So let's hit these side effects. What do you see? Sure. What, what do you feel happening? Um, yeah, I mean, there's. There's always, uh, with any new technology, with any new uh, thing that comes along, uh, there's always negative and, and positive things. And, and um, you know, the, the idea of going and mining the asteroid belt. I mean, there is a phenomenal amount of wealth in the asteroid belt. Just uh, thousands of times over what exists here, you have to mine it. But uh, the, the amount of platinum that exists out there, the amount of gold, the amount of everything, is, is literally thousands of times over what can be actually reached here on Earth. Um, so that creates the ability for absolutely phenomenal wealth. But what it also does is it says that, well, let me, let me take another step back again. Diamonds, you know, everybody knows that diamonds are sort of a gold standard. It's, uh, it maintains its, its uh, price and its wealth and its value. Um, but I also know that they mine a lot more diamonds than they release into the economy, and that is to maintain the price of the uh, diamonds. Uh, you know, they, there is a phenomenal amount of diamonds just sitting there in vaults and stuff. Um, so if we were to go out and mine the asteroid belt, we could create a phenomenal amount of wealth, or we could absolutely destroy the economy of the Earth by bringing all of that wealth back and just completely flooding markets so that nothing has any value. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of thing that really concerns me. I mean, uh, again, I do a lot of science fiction. Um, and, you know, there was some stuff on sci-fi uh, about a moon colony and, and competing economically and politically with the asteroid belt, which was competing and fighting with the, uh, the Earth. And I think that that could be a good thing, and I think it could be a bad thing. It's certainly a threat war is always a bad thing but what that has allowed in that science fiction series was a development of different political thought political systems political approaches in some cases the individual had uh, you know a phenomenal amount of respect from the society and in some cases the individual uh, was nothing but a tool of society uh, so that to me is one of the benefits is the ability again uh, to do uh, evolution of political thought by having physical separation. Um, people on in an asteroid belt that actually colonized an asteroid belt, and somebody on Earth could tell them, you know, you have to do this, and you have to have a bank, and you have to have a credit card, and you have to, have to, have to. They're physically separated. They basically can go, hey, I want to do what I want to do, and we're going to do this instead. And so I think one of the benefits of going... Uh, becoming a space-faring species is the ability to experience uh, political thought, the evolution of political thought. Uh, and so those are 
two of the benefits. The other one uh, certainly talked about uh, uh, Pete and the fact that you know you could do uh, medical experimentation on the moon or out in space anywhere, and you have physical separation. Uh, even if a virus escaped, you're in a high radiation environment, and it really couldn't survive in uh, you know being released accidentally into the environment on on the moon. So it's a self-cleaning environment. There's just so many things that could happen, not necessarily will happen, that could happen because we become a space-faring species as, to, as adverse to a Earth-centric uh, or an Earth-only species, not necessarily an Earth-centric, because I think we're going to have people on Earth, and Earth is going to control things for a long, long time. I had never thought about the the phrase that you keep on using, the political uh, thought differences that are going to be generated. And yes, soon as you, even though the, the science fiction brings it up, by being separated, you have the ability to say, that's not how we do it here. That won't work here. Uh, we need to do it differently. And we have an evolution of a new way of thinking. The On the asteroid side, as Project Moonhut is uh, looking at, or on the resource side, let's probably put it under a larger category there the ability to have unlimited or the age of infinite uh, platinum and gold and selenium and uh, hydrogen three and any other element in the world that we are looking for uh, even energy being able to be brought onto the earth will change how we live on earth i'm i haven't really explored how that would translate meaning I, I do know that there could be collapses of industries the platinum industry would collapse if we could bring back unlimited amount of platinum uh, and many others would and at the same time you try to play out the game that we're going to uh, off planet mining we're going to off planet some of the manufacturing areas that we uh, might be harmful here but maybe would not be harmful in space and so the, I don't know, do you know of anybody who's done any research to say there's the good and bad of these type of activities? I didn't no, uh, I, well, I, you know, I, I don't know of anybody. I, there may be somebody at Harvard that has done it, but actually the place where most of this research is being done is in popular entertainment, in science fiction. Um, and, and let's go back, you know, 100 years. Jules Verne experimented with the idea of nuclear submarines long before anybody had ever thought about doing them. Um, and that's, that's just creative people in entertainment uh, going out and doing thought experiments. Uh, and, and I think that if you go take a look at popular science fiction, um, there are an infinite number of stories of cultures that evolve off Earth and evolve differently politically. Um, I'm, I'm I really would like to, I've, I've often thought about doing it, but I, I really would like to see a science fiction series that sits down and looks at uh, the human uh, condition 300 years from now and and explores this concept of, uh, you know, uh, colonies in space and how they would uh, manage their political, um, political systems uh, versus colonies on asteroids and competing colonies. I mean, it, it did come as part of the discussion uh, many, many years ago when they were talking, first talking about the O'Neill spheres. Uh, you know, there were ten spheres out there. One of them may be a mining sphere. One of them may be a, an education sphere. And 
you know, if there if there were ten colonies in space, would they all necessarily behave the same way? Would they have different monetary systems? How would they interconnect? Uh, so there has been some thought experiments, but most of it is just in in social media, not social media, but in popular media, science fiction, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I'm I used to be a prolific reader of science fiction. Uh, I, I will admit that I have stopped reading to a large degree uh, because uh, in business you read thousands of emails every day, and I'm just tired of reading. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day I can retire and actually go back and read science fiction again and exercise my mind. So, yeah, I, I don't know that anybody's done the studies. It might be worth it. Uh, but getting yeah, it well, I think it would paper, be to... Yeah, I think it would to some degree to be able to aggregate or to give some framework so we can start evaluating. And you talk about the, the political side. Well, this is governance. This is decisions that we would make. And if you had the the advantage of thought, the advantage of someone who has already thought it through, whether it be, it doesn't have to be a person who follows governance or follows certain areas of expertise. It could be I'm looking up the movie, and I brought it up on one of the other audio casts. Is the set the, movie, the book Seven Eves? Yes. And that's a Neil Stevenson's. I've got it on my book. I've got it on my nightstand to read because I, I really want to read it. I I was told by so many people to read the book that I had to read the book. So I read the book, and it does make you question a lot of exactly what you're saying. So I thought that was a an interesting take, and you've kind of brought it back to me as a means of understanding understanding mirth which uh, moon and earth understanding some of the initiatives that project moon hut has in place and i think i have to explore that a little bit more uh, just uh well we, we have yeah cool no no i was gonna say the, the one thing that that i will caution you on although it's not really a caution it's just a comment is we had a conversation earlier about the fact that yeah. depending upon where you grow up, it colors your approach, your way you think about things. And so having only lived in an Earth-based uh, uh, culture, um, it would be hard, I think, for people. I mean, you could do it. You get the right people together. But it would be hard for people to sit down and really place themselves in a culture that exists only on an, the asteroid that is so far separated that people have never visited Earth, and and the only home they've ever known is an asteroid, and and it would be interesting to see how people would try to put themselves in that mentality, so that they could understand what might evolve socially. And you're absolutely right. It would be an impossibility if you, the book that was, uh, the Kelly brother who came back from space. I think the name of the book is Endurance. He, I did not read the book. I've read portions of the book. He, the horrible time he had with certain bodily functions, you hear about the eye starting to become more round and not being able to see. There are a lot of challenges that we'll face in space. And unless you've had that experience, and we've just had our first person live in space uh, 340 days, before that it was six months, so we're just starting to understand what that means. And, and what, if what's we that going to do genetically to a human being? Yeah. I mean, the first human beings that are born in space, uh, that's going to be massively interesting to see what that's going to do to them. So we, we've got 
the next 500 years of human history are going to be absolutely phenomenal. I, my only sadness is that I won't be alive to watch it because it would be phenomenal to sit down and watch. So, so let's take on this last one. The, the moon is the first step, the age of infinite. Let's, let's end strong with what, what are you thinking when you say this is the, uh, the first step in human salvation? What's your frame of mind? Yeah, what I'm what I'm talking about is is not salvation is becoming a better species or anything else, but salvation is in preventing the extension of the human species. So, uh, my thoughts, and like I said, I've been a space geek for a very long time. I'm, I've always been one that said um, we have to become a spacefaring species in order to survive. Um, and and you know Stephen Hawking said the same thing. So you know I, I I'm sorry I'll have to quote him because I was really thrilled to hear him say that. Um, but yeah, we ex we we've got to get physical separation, and the moon is the first logical step to to doing that. Um, right now we live in low Earth environment. That really is it's not even Earth. It's just low Earth environment. Uh, th there are some physical things that we go do, but being three and a half days away and having to survive and create a, a hut where people can live and do things. And then sooner or later, ultimately, there will be people there, children, so they have to have medical facilities, they have to have educational facilities. Uh, you know, my, my, I have said at a couple of conferences, just in a comment, that the day that NASA moves its headquarters to the moon uh, and the day that Coca-Cola puts a soda jerk, and I don't know, people probably won't know what that means, but uh, put some kid serving soda uh, to take care of the people working on the moon, those are the days when we will become a truly space-faring species, and we will now start to evolve well beyond uh, our, our, our cradle here on Earth. Earth will still be here. It's never going to go away. It's too many people are too controlled to leave it, and, and many people... They can't stand the thought uh, of, of actually leaving the Earth, and then there's a few of us that would go, yeah, I'd leave in a heartbeat. Uh, so going to the moon <laughs> is, the, is, is the first step in learning how to survive in space and evolving into a space-faring species. That's, that's my basic point, and we have to do that as a species in order to survive. Uh, we just so, can't continue to live here forever. The, the challenge of space is there's the large part is developing the technology that will enable us to do that. Right. Do you... Hold on, just a minute. I got a business partner that's trying to get a hold of me. I'm sure he's pissed off at me now, but that's okay. <laughs> well, it actually says pick up the phone, so he's 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 yelling at you. Um, <laughs> would, yeah, I know it's a it's your... Your, um, Ringtone, your yeah. ringer. The... Would, when you think about space and the challenges that we've had and the fact that the past 50 years has been more of a political mess than it has been an actually technological mess or technological advancement, do you, what's your timeline for actually being able to live on the moon? Live, not, so we're going to have people going to go, going to go back and forth. They're going to stay for three weeks, three months, and then they come back. When do you think the first living on the moon? These people go and they say, we're not coming back. I'm, I'm going to stay here. This is my new home. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, everybody that predicts what's going to happen in the future 
never gets it right. You know, for those people not here in, in America, there's football or baseball or excuse me, basketball. The uh, the 64 best teams and they all play each other and you know number one should all play each other and none of that ever happens and and so you can't predict anything but I I think that if we can keep space from being a political football so that when a new president gets elected it his space program is anything but what the last guy was doing if we can keep space from being just a political football or if we can have people that um, invest for the economics of it and outside of political reasons. Uh, we could have people living permanently on the moon easily within the next 50 years, and I would like to think that within the next 25 years we could do that. Um, if it turns out that it's nothing but a political football, and and uh, on the darker side, let me say that I believe that there could be forces here on Earth that would be afraid of a truly spacefaring species because of the fact that the separation does not allow for as much control as many of the political institutions on Earth want. If they can, in fact, prevent us from going to space and becoming a spacefaring species, it could take much longer, 200 years, or like the Chinese, we could just turn it all off tomorrow. And, and never become a spacefaring species. Uh, but I'd like to believe as an optimist that certainly within 25 years, or well, within 50 years, and, and hopefully within 25 years, I think we can become a permanent habitant of the moon itself. The, the first meeting I had at NASA four years ago this month, uh, or four years ago this month, somewhere in that time, we've been doing this for four years, it was somewhat to the the conversation was somewhat around the political challenges and that we could have been there should have been there uh there are a variety of reasons we haven't and i just thinking about it to some degree project moon hut and the way we're addressing bringing a collective group of individuals together to look at alliance development to increase uh, innovation to get there faster to change how we think concept of mirth as well as the the, the uh, billion hearts and mind project component as well as the governance side is doing some of what you're asking for which is taking the political football away from the captains of countries and transferring that to I'm going to say a collective, but now we're in the Borg, a group. Uh, so I don't know if I'm actually solving anything. Where we're trying to do is to make it so that it doesn't matter which one country is doing something, that we are doing something to move us forward someplace around the world so that when we're done, everybody wakes up and we find that we're there. And and it, I, I am so excited to see that happening. Uh, you know, I go to some of these conferences and it's all just the same people telling each other the same crap and, uh, you know, nothing ever happens. Uh, and then, uh, went to that one conference where I met you and, and, uh, it renewed my faith in, in what we could do as a, as a people. Uh, <laughs> I, I often refer to myself as the, the member of the cheated generation, uh, and that we had space with Apollo. We knew we could be there. We knew we could go back. We knew we were going to evolve into a space species. And then all of a sudden it come to a screeching halt. And so, yeah, I, I often believe that, that my generation was the cheated generation. 
the Gen X guys and the millennials have got the internet and virtual this, that, and the other. And but but you know my generation wanted to be the space generation, and we it was we get it ripped out from underneath our feet. So yeah, it, it doesn't mean that it it doesn't mean that it can't happen again, and that's where what we're trying to what the Project Moon Hut says is. Yes, there will be places that will pull us down. Yes, there will be challenges along the way. Uh, there are many people who believe we should not be in space. Project Moon has about how we cha- live on Earth for all species. So we become a collective, again, uh, the word wrong, wrong word. We, we are engaged in how do we solve challenges on Earth and space at the same time. So we're looking at climate change and and seawater levels rising and the extinction of species. And we're looking at the social displacement from uh, different activities that we're engaged in. We'll go into all the details. And we're saying if we can change realities by using the resources that at our disposal, someone who might not be engaged or interested in space might say, well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to help us with global warming or you're going to help us with uh, species going extinct or social displacement well then I'll participate in it even though I'm not a space person and I yeah. think you know we're I, I'm not a space person so this way it allows us to think in in as you're phrasing I love this the political side could be changed because of it yeah no I I'm I am phenomenally energized and excited by project space Hut. and it's the only reason I I don't ever do interviews with anybody and I'm not the kind of people that people ask for interviews and so I was phenomenally excited when you asked me to uh, sit down and talk to you and I, I think that's I, I this is this is an important uh, project that you have going I think it really is critical uh, to be able to continue the uh, the evolution uh, into a spacefaring species I keep using that term but that really is that's uh, that is what I think about every day is uh, how do we become a spacefaring species do, do you know why I, I wanted you on the program no for anybody who's listening, I'll open it up so that you can understand. There were there were about 40, 50 people in the National Space Society conference. Uh, this is on space settlement. I don't even like the word settlement because settlement is a negative connotation. But it was space settlement. And Dennis, you, uh, I'm going to say, were a little angry at, during the event. You were a little bit pushy. As yes. to what you liked and what you didn't like, and and at the end, when we did the summaries, everybody went around the room and did the summary of what they thought this was about. I believe you mentioned mirth, and I believe you opened up a door, a channel that said what we were delivering was different, which I I heard, I definitely heard. Yet I was a little intimidated by you. I was a little intimidated because you were so angry at the thoughts that were coming out of people's mouths that you could see it in your body language. And <laughs> when, when, when that olive branch came out, I said, when we handed cards, I said, I'd like to call you and talk to you. You said, yeah, I'd love that. I was, again, taken aback. And so that was, that was kind of that you, you were an antagonistic component to that meeting and to me, or an irritant to the meeting, or you were just irritated. And I saw that, and I figured you might, you, you just have to have a different perspective. So that's, yeah. that's why you were asked. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people told me I have a different perspective, and it's not usually said well, <laughs> in the kindest of terms. And well, in this ca- case it was, and I, I, I did have to get permission from your wife for you to do the interview, but that's a whole <laughs> different story. 
<laughs> well, I, I well, find you to be fascinating, and, and I really enjoy people that think outside the norm. I won't say outside the box. Outside the norm, because we have become so ensconced in the NASA way of doing things or somebody else's way of doing things, that people thinking outside the norm uh, truly excites me. It, it just, uh, I get so energized by it. Well, we're, we're working hard, and I'm hoping that you will be along for that journey. So thank you so much for doing this interview. It was an unexpected privilege that you would be willing to take the time, uh, based upon now how you know how I felt about you. <laughs> well, I, I, was I a little... appreciate it, and, and this has been very fun. Thank you. Well, uh, and I did, you've, you've got me thinking in a variety of areas, which I, that's one of the things that I appreciate is that you've made me think differently and that helps us to come up with new, new opportunities that we had never explored before. So again, thank you, Dennis, for the time. For those of you who are listening, appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Age of Infinite and Project Moon Hut and listen to learn more about Project Moon Hut. There is a website that you can go to if you're interested in just looking. It's called projectmoonhut.org. We are a 501c3 organization, and we are for the betterment or the change, how we live on Earth for all species. We have a combination of deliverables. When you're there, you'll be able to sign up for our future space-related database project. So please sign up for it. There's no harm. There's no foul. It's not going to. We're not going to take advantage of you. What we're trying to do is create a movement in this whole space sector. Uh, you could also go to, there's a lot of news today about Facebook, but you can go to facebook.com forward slash Project Moon Hut, and you can go connect on Twitter at Project Moon Hut. So uh, again, it was a pleasure that you tuned in today. For everybody, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening. <laughs>